So if you are relatively new to Grace, or maybe this is your first time here at Grace, maybe your first time in church ever, let me extend a welcome to you from our church family. And it's also a welcome from Jesus himself on Easter. We extend a special welcome to those who are single, married, divorced, filthy rich, dirt poor, Eno habla ingles. We extend a special welcome to those who are crying newborns, skinny as a rail, or could afford to lose a few pounds. We welcome you if you can sing like Andrea Bocelli, or like our pastor who can't carry a note in a bucket. You're welcome here if you're just browsing, just woke up, or just got out of jail. We extend a special welcome to those who are over 60 but not grown up yet and to teenagers who are growing up too fast. We welcome soccer moms, NASCAR dads, starving artists, tree huggers, latte sippers, vegetarians, junk food eaters. We welcome those who are in recovery or are still addicted. We welcome you if you're having problems or you're down in the dumps or if you don't like organized religion. We've been there too. If you blew all your offering money at the dog track, you're welcome here. We welcome those who are inked, pierced, or both. We offer a special welcome to those who could use a prayer right now or had religion shoved down your throat as a kid or got lost in traffic and wound up here by mistake. That happened, by the way, once, believe it or not. We welcome tourists, seekers, doubters, bleeding hearts, and you. You are welcome here in this church, and we hope that you find grace to be a place where you can heal if you've been beaten up by churches or you've been beaten up by religion. We want this church to be a place of green pastures and still waters for you, a place of rest, a place of hope, a place of healing. We want this church to be a safe place for disciples who feel like failures where they hear good news every single week, where they leave renewed and refreshed in awe of their Savior, in awe of what Jesus has done for them. And the reason we want to be this welcoming to you this morning is because God welcomes us. He actually likes people like us, if you can imagine that. Jack Miller said, if God can love a preacher, he can love anyone. Listen, if God can love this preacher, if God can love me, then I know he can love you. Trust me, if he can love me, he can love you. The omnipotent, all-powerful, almighty God of the universe loves you personally. Uh, A scholar by the name of H.C.G. Moore, in his commentary on the book of Romans, called God's power omnipotent, kindness. I love that. The all-powerful God is kind and tender with us frail, wobbly sinners. So Mool said this, and are we now lifted by a hand of omnipotent kindness to a place deep in his clefts, safe on his summit, knowing nothing for the peace of conscience, 
the satisfaction of thought, the liberation of the will, the abolition of death, knowing nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. From that safe place, no hurried retreat shall ever need to be beaten. That fortress cannot be stormed. It cannot be surprised. It cannot crumble. For it is he, the son, the lamb of God, the sinner's everlasting righteousness, the believer's unfailing source of peace, of purity, and of power. Omnipotent kindness. I love that description of God's power. That's the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Omnipotent kindness. So God's power is a tender power. It's a kind power. It's a gentle power. And it lifts you up from the deadness of your trespasses and your sins. And it hides you in the cleft of the rock. It hides you in a fortress that cannot be stormed even by death itself. Omnipotent kindness places you in Christ where you are safe and secure and loved eternally. And that's what Easter is all about. It's why Jesus died and rose again to raise dead you up. And so here's our big idea today. Easter means that the table is set Pull up a seat. You're welcome at Jesus' table. He's been expecting you. Easter means the table's already been set. All you have to do is pull up a seat because you are welcome at Jesus' table. In fact, he's been expecting you. How do you spell Easter? You spell Easter G-O-D-W-E-L-C-O-M-E-S-S-I-N-N-E-R-S. God welcomes sinners. That's how you spell Easter. God has a doormat outside his front door, if you will, that says, welcome, come in, y'all. Make yourself at home. That's what Easter is all about. Okay, so turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings 13. It's in the Old Testament. We're gonna see a weird episode in God's word that's perfect for an Easter sermon a few guys are going to accidentally bring their friend back from the dead. Some dead dude is going to walk out of a grave years before the very first Easter. And people think the Bible is boring. No way. And even though it is Easter, we're still in our series on the undomesticated attributes of God. If you're visiting, we've been going through a series looking at God's attributes. What is he like at his core, his nature, his essence. And so we're going to continue in that series today by looking at God's omnipotence, that God is all-powerful. And that's the perfect attribute of God to consider on Easter. So let's break down that word omnipotence. It comes from Latin, omni, meaning all, and potens, meaning potent or powerful. So God is omnipotent. He is omnipotent. He has all power. He is unlimited in his power. But you have to understand this. God doesn't merely have or possess power. He is power. 
His power and his essence, his power and his nature are one and the same. Therefore, God cannot lose any power because that would mean he would cease to be God. He is all-powerful, limitless in power, infinitely powerful. And because he is not bound by space or time, his power is everywhere because he is everywhere. And he's in 2 Kings chapter 13. So turn there in your Bibles if you haven't yet. Because some dude is coming back from the dead at his own funeral. 2 Kings 13, look at verse 20. Hear the word of the Lord. So Elisha died and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. So Elisha, the great prophet in Israel, is dead, and they just buried him. And as soon as they were getting over the shock of his death, we get interrupted in the middle of verse 20. We actually get yanked to some time into the future. So the report about Elisha's funeral service gets interrupted by the author of 2 Kings, and he takes us immediately to another funeral service sometime in the future. And we know it's sometime in the future because Elisha's bones are there, he tells us. So Elisha has been dead for quite a while. But this other funeral service gets interrupted too. The second funeral service gets interrupted in two ways. Number one, the man doesn't even get a proper burial. He just gets thrown into the cave. And then two, the man's own funeral gets interrupted because he comes back from the dead. He actually interrupts his own funeral. And the author of 2 Kings gives us a little background on why the dead man's friends just toss him into the grave. The author of 2 Kings doesn't want us to think the dead man's friends are jerks, so he tells us why in verse 20, why they threw his body in the grave. Because of these Moabite invaders. It sounds like a vintage Atari game, doesn't it? Moabite invaders. I'd play it. The Moabites, who were Israel's enemies and lived east of the Dead Sea, used to go on raids in the springtime. And so during spring break, if you will, all these college students from Moab would cruise through Israel and raid houses and businesses. And they would roll through town and take whatever they wanted. So as this dead man's friends are preparing his funeral, they spot a band of Moabite marauders on spring break on the horizon, and they fear for their lives and their wallets. And so they say a quick rest in peace, brother, prayer, and then they throw their friend's body in the grave and they hightail it out of there before these Moabites show up. Now, something you should know when you read this, graves back then in the ancient Near East are not like graves that we think of today. We're not talking six feet under. This is a cave, much like what Jesus himself would have been buried in. But this cave was not just any cave. This cave grave is where they had buried Elisha, the prophet of God, who was deathly ill a few verses earlier in this chapter, and then he died. So this grave belongs to Elisha, the preacher, 
the prophet of God, the one who spoke God's word to his people, the one who represented Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, to his people. And so these guys tossed their dead friend's body inside this cave in order to escape the spring break Moabite marauders. And then, ta-da, as soon as his body touches the bones of Elisha, this guy comes back from the dead. It's crazy. I mean, you expect Rod Serling from the Twilight Zone to pop out and say something pithy, don't you? Because this sounds like an episode of the Twilight Zone. Oh, thank you for pulling that up. That's great. Picture, if you will, a few men who have thrown a carcass into a cave. What they don't know is that they've thrown this carcass directly into the Twilight Zone. Give it up for our tech guys pulling that out. We didn't have that in the first service. I'm telling you, second service is the place to be. But what are we to do with this story? Is this story prescriptive? Is God telling us that one of our loved ones die, that we take them to the graveside of some famous preacher? Is God telling us to take our dead loved ones to the graveside of famous preachers like Charles Spurgeon or Martin Lloyd-Jones or R.C. Sproul and throw their body down and we will receive our loved ones back from the dead? No, I don't think so. This passage is not prescriptive. It is not telling us something to do. So what are we to do with this weird story? To answer that, think about who the original audience was. The original audience of the book of First and Second Kings were the Israelites who were in exile in Babylon. The original audience had rebelled against Yahweh, rebelled against the Lord, and he disciplined them by sending them out of Israel into the land of Babylon in exile. They were slaves in another land. And so what does this dead guy touches the bones of a dead preacher and comes alive story say to those exiles who were in exile when they read this, when they got a copy of First and Second Kings, what did they do with the story? What was God saying to them? God was telling them that there was hope. It tells them that Elisha, the prophet of God who represented the word of God to Israel, that even though he was dead, there was still power available for Israel. The story is telling the exiled Israelites that the powerful word of God and all of the promises of God contained in his word were still available for them even though they had turned away from God, even though they were slaves in Babylon. Elisha, like all the prophets in the Old Testament, represented the word of God to his people. So this weird Old Testament sci-fi moment was a message, a sermon, if you will, to those exiles in Babylon that the powerful word of God was still available to them and the powerful God of the word was available too. God was telling his people in exile that there was hope because of the power of his word. The nation of Israel, trapped in exile in Babylon, must have thought that they were as good as dead because they had rebelled against the Lord. And so Yahweh, the Lord, sends them a sign of hope through his word in 2 Kings, that though they may have been dead meat, his word was still powerful enough to restore them and bring them back home to the promised land. It was written to give them hope. 
Ray Dillard highlights how this odd, weird, strange, bizarre story should give us hope. He says, there is no real question about what the author of the story intended, however. The man whose corpse was tossed into Elisha's tomb was not comatose, drunk, or in a deep sleep. He was dead. Keep in mind the nature of miracle in the Bible. Miracle is redemptive, and it points forward to the restoration of all things. In this little story, we have a glimpse of what redemption will ultimately mean. Victory over death and restoration to life. It is a tiny vignette of a day when death itself will be destroyed. A glimpse of a city in which there will be no more death or mourning. And that same powerful promise is available for you and me. This is what Easter is all about. The omnipotent God and his word, his promises are powerful enough to give us hope even though we may be as good as dead. Listen, if Easter isn't practical, then it's not good news. If you can't rub Easter into your pores and get hope, then it's not good news. I mean, yes, the resurrection of Jesus has big time implications for our eternity, for our bodies, We are lost without it. We are to be pitied above all men, Paul says, if the resurrection is not true. So there are big-time eternal implications. But if there's not a practical application, kind of a street-level application for the stressed-out mom and the struggling teenager and the overworked, underpaid dad and the sick child, and you fill in the blanks and you insert your name there, If there's not a practical street-level application to Easter, then it's not good news. If Easter can't help you on the third Thursday of any given month, it's not good news. If the resurrection can't help you out on Monday morning when you drag yourself out of bed to go to a job that you don't particularly love, then it's not good good news. This weird, ancient, Near Eastern sci-fi moment in 2 Kings 13 was a preview of the hope of Easter, the hope of Jesus' resurrection. Elisha's bones and Jesus' resurrection give hope to those of us who have seriously made a mess of our lives. Maybe you're here today, man, and you know you just made a mess of your life. What hope for those of us who feel like we're trapped six feet under our sin, who feel buried alive in the messiness and the muck and the mire of our lives, who feel trapped in the coffin of our consequences, the consequences of our sin. This dead guy who got tossed into Elisha's grave and then came back to life should give you hope no matter how bad you've made a mess of your life. Understand this about the all-powerful, omnipotent God we serve. He loves to start with impossibilities, in this case, dead. God loves to start with impossibilities. And he's like, if you give me something dead, I can work with that. You can't get any more impossible than dead. So God likes to stack the odds against himself. In order to show off his power, in order to flex his omnipotent muscles, 
So God doesn't mind being the supposed underdog. He loves to demonstrate his power, his omnipotence in the face of our utter helplessness. And starting with dead is where God loves to start because you can't get any more low than that. You can't get any more behind on the scoreboard than that. Even Tom Brady can't come back from dead in the end of the third quarter and still win. You can't get any more odds stacked against you, any more underdog than having a dead person on your team. But Jesus raises the dead. When God is picking people for his team, he asks, do you have any dead people to choose from? I mean, who picks the dead to be on their team? Jesus does. And then he raises them up. But to what? To what does Jesus bring the dead back to? He raises sinners up to reign with him forever on the new earth. He raises them up and he welcomes them into his home. He welcomes them to his table. As D.H. Kuyper said, but we have really only begun to scratch the surface of the power of God. What of God's power to usward who believe? The greatest revelation of divine power is the salvation of the church in Jesus Christ. When God raised Jesus from the dead on the third day, God accomplished a powerful miracle. But notice, when God raised Jesus from the dead, he raised up to newness of life every believer who ever died and whoever will die. In the resurrection of Jesus, there was the resurrection of uncounted thousands from death and hell to everlasting life and glory. What power when God set Jesus at his own right hand, when God subjected all things to him and gave him a name above every name. But notice, when God put Jesus at the pinnacle of power and glory, God took to heaven and exalted untold thousands of weak, poor, beggarly sinners and set them in heavenly places to rule with Christ. That is exceeding great power, don't you agree? Whatever it takes to deliver the elect church from the bondage of sin and death and bring her into the freedom of the children of God in heaven, there to enjoy God's world without end, that is power. To enjoy God and to enjoy God's world, that's what Easter is all about. To be resurrected and get a new glorified body and be with Jesus on the new earth and enjoy him forever. Easter means the table is set. Pull up a seat. You're welcome at Jesus' table. He's been expecting you. And so the gospel is a, it's a welcome announcement. It's a welcome announcement of Good news that Jesus paid it all through his brutal, bloody, gruesome death on the cross for our sins. God has given us a wholehearted welcome in the death and resurrection of his son right down into the very core, the very fabric of his being. At God's core is a welcoming heart. I don't know what you've heard about Jesus. I don't know what you think about God. But at God's core is a welcoming heart. The omnipotently kind God welcomes you into his family. 
He says to sinners, Mi casa es su casa. In the gospel, Jesus comes to you and says, here's a key to my house. Here's the key to the front door. You are welcome anytime. Make yourself at home. Rosaria Butterfield says, Jesus dines with sinners not because sin is no big deal. Jesus dines with sinners not because he expects us to go on sinning. Jesus dines with sinners not because he knows that some of us are just more prone to certain sins than others and he gives us a free pass when our inclinations lead us into sin. No. Jesus dines with sinners so that he can get close enough to touch us so that he can participate in the intimacy of table fellowship as a healer and a helper. Jesus comes to change us to transform us so that after we have dined with Jesus, we want Jesus more than the sin that beckons our fidelity. That's Easter, Christian, is that you sit at the table with Jesus and you want him more than the sin that calls your name all the time. Listen, if you're a Christian here today, I hope you leave here today in awe of your Savior. I was just reading this week in John's Gospel, the post-resurrection story where the disciples are fishing and Jesus is on the beach making fish tacos for them. And he's like, come on in and let's have some breakfast. And John tells us about that event. And John tells us in that event, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, why would John do that? Why wouldn't he say he was talking about me? Is John kind of arrogant and cocky, kind of flaunting it to the others, like, well, I'm the disciple who Jesus loved. No. John calls himself that because he never got over the fact that Jesus loves him. He never got over that. It never became old hat to him. He was flabbergasted constantly that Jesus would love somebody like him. And Christian, my prayer for you today is that you too, would be flabbergasted that you are someone whom Jesus loves. That's Easter. Jesus coming to us, welcoming us, not to make us comfortable with our sin. He comes to us to rescue us from our enslaving sin. He comes to help and to heal us. It's a picture of God's heart. His openness and welcome is for anyone who comes with the empty hands of faith to rest in him. You don't bring anything. If you bring anything, you bring your sin. Come with the empty hands of faith and say, I can't be good enough. You may be thinking today that God won't receive you. You may be thinking, Pastor, you don't know what I've done. I've just messed up too much. You might not even have a church background. In fact, this might be your very first time in church today. And maybe you feel a little awkward and you think you don't belong here. But God wants to tell you, you're welcome here. So turn from your sin. Turn from living for you. Repent. That's the biblical word. It just means to change your mind. Change your mind about you. Change your mind about God. And turn to God. So I'm not going to live for me anymore. I've been rebelling against God. I'm going to turn to him. And you just collapse into his arms. You just turn and say, you got to catch me. That's repentance. It's just collapsing into the arms of Jesus. So come with the empty hands of faith today and find forgiveness of your sins and rest in Christ alone. 
Jesus is offering us a key to his front door, a key to his house. This is the way God works. He requires nothing of us but to open the empty hands of faith. Easter is about Jesus going through death ahead of us and emerging victorious where he stands resurrected on the other side and he just stands there and says, here I am with arms wide open to all who would receive him. And it's what he's saying to you today right now. And this is good news. There's no list of rules to come. Aren't you glad? There's no, you have to dress like this to come to Jesus. You can't do that. You can only read this version of the Bible. You have to do blank. There's none of that. There's no hoops to jump through. There's no to-do list. You just come. And it doesn't matter what you're like, how good you've been, how bad you've been. Jesus loves and he welcomes all kinds of sinners. As Ralph Davis said, Jesus also welcomes religious sinners. Some smell of pigs and some smell of church pews, which means we're all welcome. But how easy it is for churches and pastors to lay heavy burdens on people or to preach the beautiful, wonderful, magnificent grace of God, but make it difficult for people to enjoy it. It's the free favor of God. It's the grace of God. It's meant to be enjoyed, not meant to be analyzed. Not, it doesn't come with a leash and say, you got to be careful. It's meant to be soaked in and enjoyed. That'll transform your heart. It make, will not make you want to sin. It'll actually make you want to live for Jesus. Churches are notorious for making it difficult for people to enjoy God and to enjoy his grace. And so churches are notorious for saying things like this. You're forgiven, but you better not have any fun. No laughing, no dancing, no smiling. And I don't care if smiling's your favorite. We don't do that here. We are serious, all caps. All you can eat is liver and all you can drink is prune juice. And if you want dessert, you can go suck on a lemon. And whatever you do, you better not enjoy God. That's how some churches are. Some preachers are, even on Easter. Jack Miller said this, We have created this wonderful castle of grace, but someone forgot to put in a door to the castle, the welcoming heart of God. Easter is all about the welcoming heart of God. And that's what this odd miracle episode in 2 Kings 13 is pointing forward to. It's pointing toward the fact that Jesus conquered death and emerged on the other side and made a way for us to be welcomed into God's family, into God's home, to sit with him at his table. And it's telling us that death does not have the last word. Death has the next to last word. It does have the next to last word because we will all die, but death does not have the final word. And that means, Christian, you can stare death straight in the face and you can say, you have no power over me because I belong to Jesus, the omnipotent one. Death, you are defeated. You are a miserable, little, poor, pathetic loser. And I'll repeat it a second time if you want death. You can say those words to death because of Jesus, because he called death a miserable, little, poor, pathetic loser on the very first Easter. 
And because you belong to him, Christian, death has no power over you either. Jesus defeated death through his death on the cross. And even though death is the last enemy to be destroyed, it has no power over you. Even though we will all die and experience death someday, death is safe for those who trust in Jesus. Death is not to be feared. When we die, Jesus will be holding our hand as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I read something this week about uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse, an old Presbyterian pastor. He read Psalm 23 uh, on the way to his wife's funeral and his kid's mom's funeral. And his 11-year-old son asked him, Dad, what's the shadow of death? And as they were driving, a semi-truck passed their car, blocking the sun for a second. And Barnhouse responded to his son, Would you rather get hit by that truck or its shadow? Because Jesus conquered death, we only experience death's shadow. And one day when Jesus returns... When we are resurrected, death will be no more. The destruction of death will be complete. And that's the hope of the Christian faith. That's what Easter is all about. Tim Keller uh, said what I'm about to read. You may know Tim Keller. He's a retired Presbyterian pastor. I think he's now the fourth Presbyterian that I'm quoting in my sermon, so... You've got a Baptist preacher quoting four Presbyterians, and at the end of the sermon, I'm going to quote a Lutheran and balance it all out, okay? You may know Tim Keller, retired pastor now, author. He's fighting cancer, and he said this about how Easter has changed his perspective on cancer and suffering, and this appeared in the New York Times last week. Tim Keller said this, Holy Week gives you both death and resurrection. They don't make any sense apart. You can't have the joy of resurrection unless you've gone through a death. And death without resurrection is just hopeless. Essentially, the death-resurrection motif or pattern is absolutely at the heart of what it means to live a Christian life. And actually, everything in life is like that. With any kind of suffering, if I respond to it by looking to God in faith, suffering drives me like a nail deeper into God's love, which is what cancer has done for me. I do think that the great thing about cancer is that Easter does mean a whole lot more because I look at Easter and I say, because of this, I can face anything. In the past, I thought of Easter as a kind of optimistic, upbeat way of thinking about life. And now I see that Easter is a universal solvent. It can eat through any fear, any anger, and despair. I see it as more powerful than ever before. I love that. Easter is a powerful solvent. It can eat through any fear, any suffering, any despair, any anger, any hopelessness. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is a universal, omnipotent, all-powerful solvent. That's what Easter is about. Thomas Cranmer prayed this, O God, who declarest thy almighty power most chiefly in showing mercy and pity. O God, 
who declares your almighty power, most chiefly in showing mercy and pity to sinners. That's where we see God declare his power the most, in showing mercy to us, not giving us what we deserve. It's his pity, it's his compassion. Do you think of God's compassion as almighty and powerful? But it is. So let me ask you this morning, what are you going to do with all of this information? Will you come to Jesus? Your eternity depends on how you react and respond to Jesus. It's a choice between everlasting peace and joy on the new earth, resurrected glorified bodies, enjoying Jesus forever, or eternal punishment for your sins in hell. Now, I know that's not politically correct to say. You're probably offended. You probably want to cancel me. But the Bible makes it very clear, and I love you enough to tell you, even if you cancel me, how you react and respond to Jesus is a choice between everlasting peace and joy or eternal punishment for your sins in hell forever. Hell is for people, it's only for people, who insist on finding their life outside of Jesus' death and resurrection. Hell is for people who refuse to enjoy God's love, for people who refuse to enjoy God. Hell is for people who obstinately refuse to go to God's house where they would be greeted and welcomed by the welcoming heart of God. But they're just too stubborn, too sinful. What will you do with Jesus today? He is the most kind and tender person ever. Yes, he is the most powerful person. He is the omnipotent, all-powerful God. He spoke and what we know of as the Son just came to be. Think about that. That's the God that we're dealing with here. He just simply spoke and our Son and all the universe was there. He's the most powerful, omnipotent, all-powerful person in the world, but he's also the most tender and kind. Can you believe that? So this is the message of Easter, and this is the message that we want to take to our city and to the central coast. We want to share the good news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. But let me warn you, when you share the gospel with people, you may hear things like this. Oh, the church is just full of hypocrites. You ever heard that? You share the gospel with people and they'll probably say, well, the church is just full of hypocrites, so why would I want to go? And maybe you're here today and maybe you're thinking the same thing. Is that you today? Do you think the church is just full of hypocrites? Well, let me tell you this. No, it's not full of hypocrites. There's room for more. Want to join us? Because we've got more room for hypocrites and we would love to welcome you. And so would Jesus. Easter means the table is set. Pull up a seat. You're welcome at Jesus' table. He's been expecting you. On Easter, Jesus was raised from the dead and he ascended on high and he's been expecting you. But do you believe it today? Do you feel it? What would your life look like if you believed it? What would your life look like if you believed that God's heart actually throbs for you? What would your life look like if you really knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that you were loved by God and there was nothing you could ever do to spoil that reality? 
What if you really believe that you are completely loved, completely welcomed, completely forgiven, no matter what? What if you came away from church today believing that you are invited to live your whole life under the smile of God for all eternity? I dare you to go for it. And you just might find your chilly pride melting into exuberant joy. How do you respond to this good news of Easter? I love what Robert Capon said. He said, somebody else, by his death and resurrection, has made everything all right. You just say thank you and shut up. That's all you do. You just pull up a seat to the table and you say, thanks for letting me be here. And then you just shut up. And you make yourself at home in God's house and you just enjoy the party and you just enjoy God. Let's do that as we close. Just say, thank you, Jesus. And shut up. And then we're going to sing after that. Because Jesus, the omnipotent, all-powerful, risen Savior, really is worthy to be praised with all our hearts. Let's pray. Jesus, you are amazing and overwhelming. And it just seems too good to be true that you would lay your life down for people like us, that you would bear the penalty of our sin so that we would be welcome in your house. We believe, but help our unbelief. It's true, but it's hard to believe. We believe it, but we can't believe it. It's so amazing. And so we come and we just collapse into your arms today, Jesus, and we just say, thank you. Thank you for the hope of your resurrection. Thank you. And now we're just going to shut up for a few moments and then we're going to sing to you because you are worthy. We pray this in your name. Amen.